There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. I wonder on your existence. Because in these times, I find it hard coexisting with ignorance. The ignorant who revel in the fact that their demeanor or mental critique are whack to me, but who am I to judge? I use my mind to feel. They use their eyes to touch. I use my ears to hate. Because the ones that most women dream about are the men they won't date. <laughs> and the nightmares are seemingly the right bread. See me, I'm quite scared. If I was an angel, they're in love with devils. If love was music, I'm the bass, they're the treble. So you can only feel me when you start raising the levels. But if your ears aren't ready for my metaphors, I'll tell you all right here. See, I feel I am a dream in a world full of nightmares. I dream there's a dream girl out there I could find here who's only nightmares. Find her eyesight quite clear, clear enough her to steer right clear of nightmares who love to see me die. Right here. But see, their blind fair sees. Because if she opens her eyes, she'd realize her dream's right here. In me. <laughs> surprise. But love is blind, so there's no surprise you close your eyes to see me. See, I believe love is a heart with lips, so when God made Eve from Adam's ribs, it meant that he had to be vulnerable, to be kissed. And look, I want to trust one of you with this and that, but your demeanor or mental critique are whack to me, but who am I to judge? But a man who wants to love anything but that which I'm forced not to trust, trust I've had enough. Because the same men most of you girls are complaining about are the same men most of you girls are still dating now. And it's amazing how you proclaim to love the life you're hating now. Look, I'm just saying, I've sculptured myself to please you. Indeed, every man is physically made to please you. But I'm holding my brain from insanity to clarity so my heart will be guided to beat for you. Made my pulsation force me to leap for you. If ever there was a bullet with eyes that wanted to see for you, I would make my body your protection and bleed for you. Believe is true. Trust when life wants to mess you up. I would be the form of contraception stopping it from putting a seed in you. Believe is true. Look, I haven't seen you, but I believe in you. And these girls claiming to be women don't deter me from finding where you are. I just, I just wonder where you are. Where art thou? Are you far? Thank you so much. That poem was dedicated to Pete. Like, Pete's a special gentleman. He isn't here right now, but I definitely want to... Ah, oh, Pete, right back. Awesome. Okay, cool. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Lionheart. So, that was Lionheart, as you may have, may have guessed. Uh, Lionheart is a TEDx speaker. He's a BBC London uh, presenter. He's a community builder with uh, things like... Uh, he co-founded, like, Subjectivity UK, which we'll talk about in a, in a second. Um, he's, of course, a, an award-winning uh, spoken word artist. And his first book, The Mute's Rebellion, was released in 2017. Before we talk about the book, I want to talk about uh, names. So your name is Rael, and I, I, I was talking to Leinhardt, and I was like, is it Rael? Because in my, in my head, it was like Rael. And he said, Rael. And I said, oh, Rael, like in French, like real. And he said, yeah, I'm real. And I'm like, okay, you're real, Rael, Rael. So his name is uh, Rael Cape. 
but uh, you changed your name to Lionheart. Lionheart. So could you could you speak a little bit about that? All right. So um, okay, I didn't legally change my name to Lionheart. Okay, yeah. Just throw that one out <laughs> right now. My passport still says my real name, but um, my parents um, they're both Caribbean, and um, my parents are Rastafarian, right? So they have a strong affinity to lions. And um, it's really funny, like my name means God's champion. Now imagine growing up and you're like three or four years old and your dad's like, you're God's champion. It's like the pressure and heavy weight, like gravity was nothing compared to that name. And I feel like it kind of daunted me as a child because I had to live up to all these high expectations of what my name actually meant. And I remember being at the age of probably eight or nine, I was like, I kind of, I like my name, but I don't like the pressure that my name has given me. So I was always looking, I was hoping people would give me nicknames, and no one would give me nicknames that I can share with you in public right now. They're always bad derogatory <laughs> nicknames. Yeah. So I remember at the age of probably 18 and 19, there was um, an ex that I had, and she was trying to say, okay, if you're going to do this poetry thing, right, you need to have a different name. And um, this is really embarrassing. She was like, oh, you should call yourself Sacred Soul. Sacred that's that's Soul. a good way of running from, you know... God's Listen, champion. To, from yeah. God's champion to sacred soul. Yeah. Just call me John, right? I'd rather <laughs> have something really simple. And then she was like, no, it has to be something that is powerful and it means it's a terrible part to you. And um, I've always been someone who could always understand something really quickly, right? If you put me in a, in a schoolroom, any academic subject, I could understand it quite quickly. It was only when it came to the matters of the heart, right? Like emotional intelligence, I would struggle, like passionately struggle. I've had a history of having really, really bad dates and um, my fluctuation of trying to understand where love is in my life and how I fit into love kind of led me to kind of use a lion in the same way. So lions have a supremacy over the jungle. I call myself Lionheart because I want to have a supremacy over my emotional intelligence, over my emotional vulnerability, mm. and I have a kind of like a stronghold of how I should feel and how I shouldn't feel in some situations. So that's where the name Lionheart comes from. Mm. And if I mm. can, you're going to have to shut me up at some point. <laughs> we agreed that we, I can do this. And I'll just... Bzz, yeah. bzz. I, I uh, believe like we should have like aliases because sometimes we, we grow up to believe we are a certain person when really that's who our parents wanted us to be. That's who our partner wanted us to be. That's who our best friend was comfortable with us being. And by me kind of creating myself as Lionheart, I'm now directing who I'm supposed to be rather mm. than enabling someone else's viewpoint of myself. Mm. I want to go back to uh, God's champion. I mean, uh, and, and the idea of God. Um, in your acknowledgments, I found it really interesting that at the end of the book, uh, Lionheart thanks his parents, and he says, for my dearest parents whom I love and owe an undying appreciation, thank you for everything entirely. You introduced me to God. We've been friends ever since. So when you said God's champion, my mind immediately leaped to, oh my God. But in the acknowledgments, he says, thank you, mom and dad, because you introduced me to God. So what is... Uh, your concept of God as described in these acknowledgements? Like, what do you kind of... You know when you just go that? into the deep question straight away, right? <laughs> God in the first five minutes, I love that. That's awesome. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm currently doing work with architects now, okay? Looking at, like, interior design and the built environment and how that can affect mental health through poetry. And what was really interesting to me is that I grew up in, like, Christian atmosphere, right? My, my parents wanted me to have an understanding of God outside of the house. And I would always go to, like, Sunday church... And if anyone's been in a church, hands up, anyone's been in a church, cool. There's this immediate feeling of awe and reverency, right? Like you, you have to kind of obey this amazing thing which kind of has the scale to impact you psycholog psychologically. And for me, it was like, okay, this is a daunting feeling again, mm -hmm. right? First, I've got my name. Now I've got every Sunday, I've got to have this um, inadequate feeling of I'm, I'm inferior to something so superior than me, I can't even see it. 
And um, for me, when I say you introduced me to God, it's more of like I met God at eye level. So we can have a conversation where a friendship now, it's not this, this peer mm. that I can't mm. reach or have a conversation mm. with. Mm. It's now, and if anyone kind of believes in meditation or like that inner being, like I always feel like God is the greater version of yourself you're aspiring to be. Um, kind of like a side note as well. I read this quote on Tumblr and social media, and it said that um, a form of hell is when you die, you see the person you was meant to be and they come and visit you at your deathbed. And I was like, what? I was like, no, I, I don't want that. So when I say like you've, I've created that friendship with God, I've created a friendship with the person that I want to be rather than fighting the person that I'm currently am. Let's talk about, move away from names and talk about titles. So this book is called The Mute's Rebellion. And uh, you've said uh, over and over again that you, know, you uh, suffered from selective mutism. Uh, mutism. Mm -hmm. And I, I for, for once, you know, for, for, for example, I don't know. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. And I Googled it and you know, I had to educate a little, myself a little bit about it mm -hmm. before I, uh, you know, had... Ha had this conversation with you. So could you maybe talk a little bit to, to all of us about that? So one thing that I'm really interested in is that pretty much everyone in this room will go through something and not have a, a label to attach it to, right? We'll have these feelings, we'll have these mm. um, cognitive understandings, but we don't know how to kind of label it or put a title on it to say, this is what I went through, right? We just say we went through some pain or some hardship, but like, this is what I went through. And it was only until I was outside of my, my, my episode of selective mm. mutism, that I understood what it was. I didn't know it at the time. I have many male friends who still don't realize to this day they're going through depression, right? Because they think depression is just some far off region in the world that they've never visited to when they're actually living in it right now. And do you think naming it, having a name for it gives you strength? Oh, 100%, okay. 100%. And again, mm. it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's better the devil you know, which is a bad phrase to use, but once you can understand what something is, you can break it down. Right? When you don't know what something is, like that fear of the unknown. When you don't know something, is ah, what's going to happen to me? Go on Google. Google will help you or make you feel like you've got the worst <laughs> disease in the world. Right? But mm -hmm. once you can put something in a box, you can now dissect it mm -hmm. because it has mm -hmm. a title. And I think that's what fear doesn't want us to do. And also you feel like, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not crazy. Like I have this thing, this, this you know, this condition that other people that, go that through. Other people go through. Yeah. yeah, it's not, it's just me, you know, yeah. So what is selective mutism? mutism? So selective mutism is a social anxiety disorder, okay? So it's usually when you can't speak in front of groups of people, right? Something I'm, I'm overcoming or have overcome. Um, usually when someone else's, um, let's say, conviction or higher intellectualism, like kind of makes you feel like you can't speak or you're not, you don't have any validity to speak in those situations, or you just have this innate feeling of insecurity where it trumps any sort of hope or optimism that you can speak, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was kind of like um, having all the words and, and feelings to say, but having like a mental inertia where your brain can't actually move you into action, right? Imagine someone, chains is a really cliche way of describing being trapped, so it's more like a group of people just holding you back inside of your head whenever you wanted to speak. And if you attempted to, there'd be like that voice in your head saying, what are you doing right now? Clearly, you know, this is not going to be uh, fortuitous for you. So yeah, mm. it's, it's definitely a, a cognitive battle mm. because you are the person holding yourself back in that. It's not exactly your environment. It's what your environment is conditioning your brain to see and to tell you. Because we all have that inner dialogue, right? We all have that inner voice in our heads. And for me, selective mutism was listening to the wrong voice that told me don't speak. Mm. And did poetry have a role in you overcoming that? And if so, how so? 
So if it wasn't for poetry, I kid you not, I would not be here right now. Like there's some friends in the audience who see me acting really outlandish. Like if I had a, a, a drink right now or like a sugary item, I'd be more energetic than you see. If it was not for poetry, I wouldn't have had one, the language to communicate what I was going through with myself or with the world. Two, I would have been frightened of myself even more. I think like what poetry does, it kind of desensitizes the fear and the phobia of you becoming a better person. One of my friends, she's an actress, and she says um, she, she's scared of success. And for me, it was, it was this alien concept. Like, how could you be scared of the thing that we're all looking towards? But we can put fear into any environment. I feel like what we're looking for is the instrumentation or, the, or the, the weaponry, which poetry for me was the weaponry, to fight against a lesser version of myself. So if it wasn't for poetry, if it wasn't for me having an external dialogue with my inner self, I could never have found who I really was. Mm. And how did you arrive at poetry? On stage. On stage? On stage. So I was introduced to poetry off stage, but when, when you say arrival, I feel mm. like I've landed somewhere that I can understand the terrain. Okay, before you actually attempt to put something into action, it's all theoretical, it's all in your head. It was only until I went on the stage and shared a piece of my, my heart or my life with the world, I felt like I was now submerged into poetry. Mm. And did you, before you went on stage, were you like looking from the audience, listening to certain people like in, I don't know, in open mic nights mm -hmm. or in, like, could you tell us a little bit about that trajectory? So it wasn't like, oh, I woke up one day and said, I'm going to be a poet. Like, yeah. I, I, hell no, right? A lot of people would tell you there's no career in poetry, right? There were a lot of people that tell you there's no money to make in poetry. A lot of people would say that it's, it's a, a way of running from a destiny, right? And for me, I was studying architecture in, in university. And my friends were always saying, oh, you should watch this. This is when YouTube would just kind of like slowly peek into its um, ascensions mm -hmm. right now. And um, I watched a thing called All Deaf Poetry. Mm. And that yeah. really kind of opened my eyes. And it's, it's another reason why I champion people who share what they do in front of others, right? If we don't expose ourselves to another way of life, to another way of thinking, to another culture, to another form of understanding, to another perspective, to another book, we're always going to be the same myopic person who sees the world one way, right? I can't remember who the person was who said, um, if you've only read one book, you've only lived one life. Right? Mm. I can't stress how much we need to expose ourselves to other thoughts, to other feelings, to other experiences to really realize who we actually are. Which, actually, I wanted to save that question to the end, but that, that answer sort of... We're gonna... Uh, yeah, we're gonna do that. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you about access. Mm. Uh, about, like, I grew, up, I grew up in Civil War Lebanon and, and there was no access for me to a public library where I could, you know how you, you hear stories of like now successful writers saying, oh, but you know, I, I, I didn't have money, I didn't have books, but there was the local, you know, public library mm. down the streets or two streets away. And I went there and I just, you know, I found lots of books and I yeah. read. So I didn't have that. Mm. And I think for quite a while I suffered from a lack of access, whereas I feel that places like London, which yeah. is where you come from, I mean, the poetry library there is, Jeez. oh my God, like it's heaven. Mm. So um, how important is, and what you talk about, YouTube, and also poetry moving from, uh, you know, just the page to, oh, it's on a screen now. Mm -hmm. That's more access for people who might not have access to books, who can now, okay, see it on, uh, on TV or, or, yeah. or, or, or on the stage or on YouTube. So how important was that for you? And how do you think it's important for the community also, like for, for young people? Maybe? So to have access to a library or mm. to have some... All right, so um, another... And what was your relationship to libraries? 
also. Okay, three places. All right, cool. First okay. place I'm gonna take you, okay? When I was in primary school, so roughly around the ages of like seven or eight, um, everyone was reading like novels or like the, the story, nursery stories, right? I was a person reading the Theosaurus. Kid you not, I was fighting. My yeah. first word was dismal. I don't know why I learned such a negative word. Dismal. <laughs> right? But it was the first one I was like, oh, I can talk about sadness in a different way, which maybe alludes to something else in my childhood. But I was so fascinated about finding new ways to describe or express something. Mm. And I was looked at like the weird kid, right? Like everyone is having story time. I'm having theosaurus time. <laughs> I'm, I'm having dictionary time. So I kind of got weeded out because conformity is a thing that it's in every experience you enter as a child. And I only realized that that understanding of what, what wasn't cool stopped me from actually feeding my, my drive to want to read. And later on, I have a lot of male friends who, particularly in like the Afro-Caribbean community in London, most of us don't read, right? And it, it was only until I got educated outside of my social circles that made reading seem like an uncool thing to do was when I really started like encouraging myself to be wise or more intellectual, more creative. There's a, a poet and he says, um, if you want to, no, if you knew how smart your enemies were, you'd read a book, right? And I was like, wow, wow. And you can change the enemy into anything and the enemy could be an understanding, right? But it just shows you if you actually have something that appears to be a higher magnitude of intelligence, and you realize this could actually potentially harm you, right? We can talk about various things in the world. Once you are aware that they've done a lot of reading or a lot of awareness, you will expose yourself to the same material or better, so you actually won't be in fear of that anymore. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I can. And when did that shift happen? Like that, that oh, no, I'm going to read now. Ooh. It's cool to read. Honestly, I don't know. Let me know if you felt this way, right? I've woke up many days feeling like, I'm, I'm really not the smartest person in the room. Have you ever felt that way, right? And we're not saying that we're stupid. We're just saying that if we put ourselves into a conversation about politics or, again, vulnerability, masculinity, all these kind of aspects, for me, myself, I felt inadequate. Like, I really don't have the arsenal, the literary arsenal to speak right now. And in that way, it kind of, again, makes you feel subservient to someone else's mm. intelligence, right? Mm. I hated feeling that way, right? Um, especially growing up in a, in a household where my dad is a high intellectual, and whenever he's having conversations, I'm just, okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What does your dad do? Uh, he's an architect. Okay, yeah, and he talked to you about... He forced me into architect. That's another ah. thing that he did. Um, but what, he... What's your relationship to architect? No, let's, let's let you we finish that okay. thought um, first. But yeah. So, I forgot where I was going with it Where as well. were we going? Where was where I going, we going with it? Yeah, like, you realize you're not the smartest person in the room, and, you know, your dad has all these smart conversations with you, mm -hmm. and you want to engage with that, cool. right? So like, there's a quote by, I believe, Malcolm X. I hope it's Malcolm X. And he said that, um, that which you don't hate, you will eventually tolerate, right? So for me, I had to understand I had to hate that lack of intelligence. I had to hate that feeling of, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not, I don't have the wisdom to speak in this situation. And that hatred for that lower default mentality spurred me on. It was my leverage to find something else, and I found that happiness in books. Mm -hmm. I think deep mm -hmm. down in all of us, when we learn something new, like if I told you something about like neurology right now, you'd be like, oh, okay, that's how my brain works. And you have a little hit of dopamine inside mm -hmm. of your head. Yeah. But a lot of us are... It's like that gym complex. You know working out in the gym will give you that cute six-pack, that cute figure, <laughs> the biceps, which I haven't got yet. It would give you all of that. But you know you have to go through pain first. Yeah. And that pain in a lot of situations makes you feel like, ah, oh, it's not worth it. Reading a book, ah, oh, this is going to be long. It's got 500 yeah. pages. I'm not going to do it. I still haven't read War and Peace because I'm scared. What pains did you go through in order to 
finish this book? What was we've, we've only got an hour, you know. Um, <laughs> pains. Um, okay, show of hands. How long do you think it took me to write this? Like one year? Two years? One, got three, got three, three, three years? Those of you are right. It took me three years. And it may not sound like a long time for a book, but like, I mean, I had utter devotion. Every single day I'd wake up probably around seven or eight mm-hmm. and spend eight hours straight. No food, like probably like a bottle of water. And no I'm in food. front of my... No like food. no chocolate. I'll say, I heard Come this on. is really... No, even chocolate. I was no coffee. so... coffee. Obs- I hate coffee. Like okay. if you gave me a milkshake, hey, I'd be, you'd be my favorite person in the world. I love milkshakes. <laughs> but it was this... Um, I heard someone say... Beyonce was working so hard, she forgot to eat. And I was like, what? I can do that. Which is so bad and so toxic. <laughs> but when I'm in, when I'm in the, the mode, the zone, I forget about food, which is probably a bad thing. I need to eat after this. Please remind me. Mm-hmm. We'll but eat. I just, yeah. Because I'm hungry. I'm we'll hungry eat. too. Yeah. And I, I need a milkshake, yeah. right? But um, <laughs> I was just so disciplined in an unhealthy but healthy way, mm. which it channeled my creative juice. Like I knew at this time I had eight hours to achieve something. And mm. I would work on that achievement the following day. So you put a framework, like you put like, so I'm going to wake discipline. up yeah. and, and work for, for eight, for eight yeah. hours. And how were, how did those eight hours look like? Did you start by reading and then writing? Did you listen to music? Did you do a little dance? Like, yeah. All right. So, oh, this is another interesting thing about page and stage. Okay. I feel like for me growing into the spoken word sphere, I didn't necessarily have to read any books to become a spoken word artist. That was my own journey, right? Some people's journey may be different. But for me to understand the mechanisms and the techniques and the way of actually presenting a piece of artwork on page form to an audience required so much work, which I didn't have at that time. Like mm-hmm. I, fair enough, I was in university and I was in school and I learned these things, but I couldn't apply it to poetry. It's when I learned all these things about how we should live our lives. I couldn't apply it mm-hmm. to putting it into poetry. I spent two of those three years probably reading just under 90 books every every year and my mentor was really great at giving me it's too many books that again we say like we just can't buy all these books I had to go on YouTube or Google and find them and read their articles and read their poems but mm. it was a it was almost like a religion I knew I had to obey to this kind of system otherwise I would wouldn't know what I could do with a poem and in some ways it's like when you get given a gift or a talent it's not yours to just keep I have to work on it so it can do more for other people so I knew I had to read more read more read more read mm-hmm, more mm-hmm. and kind of like the joy of that, you know what I mean? Because you're experiencing someone's mind. When you enter a book, you're exp- it's kind of like a transportation to how they think, and you're hoping to leave that with a gem that can actually change how you think. It's like another cogwheel mm. that you want. Yeah, yeah. What, what role did revision play in that process? Ah, all right. Oh, my gosh. All right, so my mentor's not here, so I can say anything about him. Um, <laughs> I, I had a mentor. His name can is, we um, say who? Yeah, I'll say his name. Yeah, yeah. Is... If you tell him, I'll get in trouble. <laughs> Um, his name was Jacob Samuel Rose. Oh, he's a brilliant poet. Yeah, yeah incredible. Um, yeah, yeah. He challenged me to <laughs> he challenged me to write three versions of I think fifty poems in a month. Now that didn't mean write the same poem in, in like just edit it here or remove this paragraph. It meant write this in three different ways. It was hell. Oh. And I I probably had no social life. But what it taught me is, again, discipline will show me a different way of expressing something. Mm. You know, like when you go through heartbreak or you go through a conversation, you're really upset, you just tell them how it is in your mind. But if you take 24 hours and think about what are the other ways I can communicate with someone, you'd really be surprised at the outcome of that conversation. So for me, I looked at my poems mm. like that. I mm. said, cool, mm. I think the first idea I come up with is a great one. 
it's not a great one. You spend a week away, come back to it, and you realize, oh, I could have went about it this way, right? We tend to think in this age of social media, everything has to be immediate, but the brain requires time, and, and that's why sleep is important. So yeah, he challenged me, and I think I had like 200 poems in a month. They were all great. I'm not going to lie to you, some of them were really, really terrible. Really, <laughs> really terrible. But then his challenge was to turn it into 30. So from 200... To 30 poems. To 30, which... No, there, there, are 50, there is 42 in here. So you cheated. And I had Does to he know? Yeah, Does he know? Of course he okay. knows. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what it was? it was? It was telling myself there were poems that I just liked mm. and I wanted to share them, but they, they didn't contribute to what I wanted to take away from, from my collection, mm. right? Like, that's me just wanting to, to appease my ego, to feel good about, oh, this is a really nice poem that I wrote. No, it doesn't serve... The, 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 the harsh feelings that I went through, the harsh experiences that I went through, and I'm doing you an injustice and a disservice because I just want to entertain you with something that I've spent time on writing. It has to leave uh, an emotional impact with me. I have to leave an emotional footprint with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm rambling right now. How I'm about, really... <laughs> I mean, since we're, since, since we're talking about that, like taking poems, certain poems out and mm. which ones to keep, did you have, like... What was your process in terms of like ordering the poems? And like, I'm obsessed with like, how do you order the poems? Like, do you put them on the floor? Mm. You know, like, how do you go about ordering? Like, oh, this is gonna be the first one. This is, you know. Ooh. All right. So. And you're an architect. This is the. So this oh my goodness! All right. Um, I'm. Does anyone like know about star signs? Like, I'm a Virgo, born in September, which means I'm hyper analytical. Okay. I will pretty much hyper-analyze any single object or project in front of my eyes. I probably had minimum 10 different ways of ordering this book because I would change every couple of months, right? My brain would say to me, I feel this way now, so I want to start it off talking about my experiences. Or I'd say, no, I kind of feel this way now, so I'd start talking about my parental upbringing. Or no, mm -hmm. I'd say, no, I want to start talking about depression and really show you just how dark and... I changed it so many different times. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was on a computer screen. Sometimes it was um, just the titles. I wanted to see how the titles made me feel. Or I would lay them all down on the floor and kind of reshuffle them every mm. couple of days. So mm. it went through the motions. It, it wasn't this one way of doing something. I kind of had to experiment. Mm. And this is my first, so I didn't actually have a, um, a blueprint to follow. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm really interested in how you uh, build, uh, you know, a book. Since we're talking about... So what's your relationship to, to architecture now? Okay, so um, there's a company in um, London called... Um, the Welcome Collection, they're like a charitable organization that focuses on science, humanity, and a bunch of other stuff. And um, they commissioned me to talk about how I alleviated my depression through poetry and architecture, right? So there's a woman called Sarah W. Goldhagen. If I'm speaking too, like, science, scientific, like, let me know. <laughs> but she's called Sarah W. Goldhagen, and she speaks about neuroarchitecture, okay? which is this thing where the built environment affects us on a neurological level. There are statistics that prove you walk past certain styles of buildings, right, before you go to work, it can induce a form of anxiety. It can form an... Really? A, a, this is proven, wow. right? Now, a lot of us aren't conscious. We could just think we hate our boss, right? When really it's the environment that we're, we're walking into every single day. There, again, are statistics that say we spend 80% of our lives inside a building. 80% of our lives inside of a building, right? Imagine if we change that. Um, I'm just going to go in now, right? So my relationship to architecture is because I realized that my connection to aesthetical preference could ameliorate the lesson how I felt about myself. 
So for a lot of us, we like to go to parks, right? To, to green spaces, right? To, to look at the, the view of the water. There's a phrase called biophilia, which is the, an innate human ability to when we see green pastures or beautiful vistas, it calms us down, mm. right? This has happened from the beginning of time. Now, another scientific proof, which again relates to why I go to certain specific environments, is that there were two patients who were suffering from, I think, lung cancer. And one was facing a, a window which had a brick wall in front of it. The other faced a green pastures, right? Guess who healed quicker? The wow. one facing the green pastures. It does something to our neurological wiring. And if we're not aware of it, mm. we can't control how we feel. Yeah, this so is that's brilliant. My connection. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm personally obsessed with space and, you know... Uh, I'm a city girl. I love, like, cities make me feel better than the countryside. Mm. Is that a thing? Like, is that, like, now, so, now I'm, I'm, I'm consulting him. But no, that, they're, they're, no seriously. <laughs> like, cities, walking a city street makes me feel so much better than walking down a green Oh, my gosh. Okay, so, ooh, we're going on such a different tangent. <laughs> I hope you guys are liking this in some way. Um, so I'm now a um, current poet in residence at an architecture firm called Grimshaw, okay? And what I do in this residency is I, I interview their partners, their associate directors, their associate architects to really understand their aesthetical preference uh -huh. to the built environment. And then I communicate that to find out who they would actually need in a partner, mm. right? Because the interesting thing is if you can personify a feeling into a built form, you can understand which environment will suit you better, right? We can always personify different things, but if, imagine if you can add a feeling. So here's one of the, I really shouldn't be saying this, but I'm saying this now. We're going to turn my poems into potential proposals for buildings, right? They probably will never make them, right? Mm. But it's just to understand that you can turn a feeling into a space. You can design how that space will feel, function, and serve a people. And that's the next step for me as a poet. Like, we do so much with words, but how about we actually, again, like, become the architect of our words and yeah. see something physical, something tangible that can make you feel the way a poem will make you feel. Do you, do you have a poem that sort of speaks to that? Not ready. They're not, not ready, ready yet, yeah. Not ready. I'm okay, not, not going to rush it because I know yeah. just how... I guess that's another thing that kind of ties into a book. We understand the narrative arc that we want someone to go through when we write a book. Uh -huh. And I feel like in me creating a poem, I've understood how I want you to feel at certain parts. So... I'm giving you all my information right now. Um, I'm a super romantic, so I will write a list of how to make you happy throughout the year, right? I'll listen, I'll think, okay, this is happening around this month, you like this, and I'll think, cool, at these points in the year, I know that this is gonna be something that you will like, right? Same thing with a book, we might shock you at some parts of the things that we reveal, but we kind of orchestrate, right, the, the emotional trajectory that you're gonna have, and mm. I think buildings do that. There's a thing called um, transitional spaces. If I am rambling, someone just tell me, this, this is why I gave her this sign, I'm okay? I'm loving this because I didn't expect this conversation to take this turn. So but I'm, I'm, you know, but, but let, yeah, but we shouldn't ramble too much mm. about it. Um, do, do you want to, do you want to, did you want to continue that thought though? Yeah. I don't want to okay, do the so thing. I'll, yeah. I'll make it really, really short, okay? Yeah. Um, there's a thing called transitional spaces, which is um, an architect once said to me, architects are the... Um, <laughs> the manipulators of claustrophobia, right? So they're going to control how you feel in like a small corridor mm. so that when you go into a grand stadium or a feeling of getting like a church, you feel the sense of, ah. <gasps> so they've actually controlled how you feel moving from space to space to space. Yeah. There's another thing called patriarchal architecture, which is another thing we can go to. But yeah, people can definitely have an effect or impact on you based on the mindset or the ego of the architect. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm that. looking forward to like reading your poems about that. I mean, th this sounds... Pretty amazing. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit about poetry and, and community. And um, so you work with the BBC, yep. but you're also the co-founder of uh, Subjectivity uh, UK. So could you talk a little bit about both these projects mm -hmm. and how they uh, feed into like nurturing uh, the spoken word and poetry community? Mm. Um, all right, so I'm reading books, right? The book I'm currently reading is called The Tools of Titans. And within the book, um, one of the, the gentlemen said that if you want to find something to write about, find a thing you hate. Usually a lot of us tend to write about like negative things. Writing about happiness and love is really difficult for a lot of poets, okay? Mm -hmm. But when you find something you hate, it really gives you like a, a different sense of resource to push that forward, okay? Because it's usually something we want to change in the world. And for me, when it came to um, creating an event that I could form some sort of social cohesion that enabled people to, one, just have a, an organic rapport with someone who you don't know, have a conversation. You know that cringe part where people say, okay, shake hands with the person next to you, and you're like, I don't know you, but I'm going to say hello. I hated that, right? I wanted to go into a space where I just felt comfortable. And that, again, falls in line with my selective mutism. I didn't want my environment to make me feel like this is even more tense. So me and my good friend who had like three to four hour conversations would think, why is it only me and you having these really in-depth conversations? Okay, mm, we should, mm. there is a tribe out there of people who just don't know that we could do this in a big space. Yeah. So um, our first event was really kind of trialing how we could create social cohesion through conversation. Mm. And this and is Subjectivity UK. This is Subjectivity UK. Yes, so yes, we've, yes. we've launched it in many spaces and it's, people really like people. As much as we have all these kind of hiccups about how other people see the world, we really like to resonate with another human being. There's something about it, whether you want to call it magic or whatever it is, meeting someone new, like I met Joan today um, on Tuesday, and we just resonated, right? I met my good friend as well. I made you stand up before. I'm not going to make you stand up again. I've met so many people on this journey, right, that have just impacted me in, an, in a magically positive, powerful way, right? Um, another one of my friends and partners is here, and Cass, he's, the way he thinks kind of evolves you when he talks to you. Right? Mm -hmm. And it's these kind of energies that you need to kind of navigate towards to really make you a different person. Yeah, so, and also the importance of like having a conversation, you know, like an about, honest one yeah. because, okay, I'm gonna do, I'm so sorry to, to cut you, right? No, no, absolutely. Buildings have facades, all right? They have this, see, this it's layer. It's fault, not mine. <laughs> they have this yeah. layer that they yeah. just want you to see, but you never see what goes on behind it. Yeah. Most people, when we have a conversation, it's surface level, yeah. right? Yeah. We yeah, never yeah. really go really deep. True. And that's when you really get to know someone, to really get to know if you like someone. Um, Will Smith said that um, his wife asked one of his long-term friends um, how long they was with their partner for. And um, I think she said 50 years. And then she asked them, Jada, who was his wife, how long we've been together. And he was like, 15 years or 16 years. She's like, you don't even know him yet. That's like, wait, you, you've been married to someone for 15 years <laughs> and you, you don't know that person yet. Yeah. And it just goes to show that we, keep, we have to really take away these levels of ourselves mm -hmm. that we think other people should see. And again, mm. that's what poetry does. It, it dismantles the facades that we think other people need to have to appreciate us as who we are. And this dismantling in, 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 you know, in those events mm. uh, you hold in Subjectivity UK, this dismantling, did you find that it was difficult at first for people to open up or were you surprised by like, oh my God, look at this, you know, it's easier talking? A bit of both. Okay. A, a bit of both. Um, James Baldwin said, I'm throwing quotes at you, right? I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> James Baldwin said, um, those who suffer can allow others to suffer less, right? So when I'm in spaces, yeah. I think, how do I feel? How would I feel in a situation? What would I need someone to make me feel comfortable to, to talk? So I was surprised at what happened after two months 
But in the beginning, I was like, no, because this is what I would need. Like, there are fundamental things that make someone feel really good and appreciated. For some yeah. reason, we just don't do it, right? It's like, has anyone had like a great hug meeting someone for the first time? Right? It makes you feel like this is a really warm person, right? My friend gave me a great hug this, in the elevator this a minute ago. It was like, this is what we need. Mm. Give good hugs, <laughs> right? I'm not a hugger. Okay. But, but, <laughs> but, but, I'm, but I love uh, conversations and I, like, I'd, I'd love to like, attend one of those events like, and, and, and see how that's like. Uh, uh, what about the BBC? Okay. The, your work um, with the BBC. So now I'm a radio presenter every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. And I get to pretty much champion the arts and culture within London. So I get to bring on poets, I get to bring on writers, um, mm -hmm. influencers, singers, dancers. And for me, starting off in like the open mic scene or like just trying to be known as this is something that you want to do, mm -hmm. there are very few places that would allow you to share yourself to the world, all right? There are very few places that allow or facilitate like these beautiful audiences. And I feel very honored to be in a space where I can give 100,000 listeners five minutes of someone's true art that they've spent months developing. Like it feels really, really great. And how me. do you curate that? How do you, how do you choose and do you, do you have in mind certain guidelines of, oh, I'm going to pay attention to this as I curate, as in, you know. So right now, I'm missing the, the, the actual radio show, but it's on International Women's Day. Mm -hmm. So me and my co-host decided that it should be all women that we bring of on, course. right? With the yeah, music yeah. that we bring on should be focused towards championing women, those kind of things. So we definitely like to build themes that we think the world wants to talk about, but may not have the language or the artists to actually help them transfer that knowledge. And do you, do you go, like, do you go to open mics and just listen and see, like, who can I? Yeah, do, but, do you do but that? Even, I don't just go to yeah. kind of like, I feel like an A&R, right? I'm just looking for the next artist. I go yeah. to experience it. No, no absolutely. And, and, yeah. and whoever resonates with me the most, yeah, yeah. or I think like, you know, I, I really love that someone came to me and said, you know what, you've got something, right? I'd want to do that for someone. For to someone kind of, else. Yeah, who I could see you, you really want to take this somewhere. So, and then I would probably invite them and schedule a, a day with them on radio. And do you, do you, are you conscious of like, I want to curate this so lots of people of color have a voice? 100%. And just yeah. any kind of demographic you can think of, mm -hmm. right? Because there's so many ways of, of how our mentality can ostracize a voice. I don't like that because I felt like I was ostracized at many points in my life. Mm -hmm. If you're giving me a platform, I'm going to give a voice to anyone who feels that they've been held back or that they feel like this can serve someone. I think poetry flourishes in the margins, really, and mm. I think you know we should always be be working on that. Mm. Um, I'm looking at the time. I think we have time for one more question before I ask you to do a poem, and then maybe open it to to your questions. I hope you guys have questions. <laughs> uh, so I have a lot. I have to choose one. This, let's talk about style a little bit, so it's not too general. So as I was reading this, I noticed uh, one thing about your poetic style is a play on words mm -hmm. that you uh, and on puns and, and you, you take how a word functions and you flip it and you you, you know so where does that uh, come from um, ashamedly it came from like my hip-hop um, but why ashamedly as, like hip-hop you know because I feel like when I was 11 or just in the early teens I had peers determine what, what my sound would sound like, what my content would be like, and I would echo everything that my friends or these rappers were talking about, because there's always this pressure of, find your voice, find your voice. So I tend to put a microphone into someone else's voice and say that was me, right? And that's what I felt I was as a rapper. I was just a, an emulation of someone else who I respected and looked up to. Mm -hmm. And I think through poetry, 
it wasn't me referencing something someone else has said. It was me referencing an experience. So the language that I used when I was trying to be a rapper was definitely a, a, an immature way of expressing myself at that time, but it was the only thing that I could but do. But you were able to take that into your own poetry later on, Which right? is what like, hip-hop kind of yeah. teaches you. Yeah. It teaches you how to say something in a way where someone has to really think about what you said, right? Sometimes we can give you something which is so digestible you don't really get any substance from it, okay? With hip-hop, it creates like double entendres or triple entendres that you can really think, bro, there are three levels to what you just said to me. Hmm, I need to think about that. So for me, I wanted to be able to engage with the subliminal context that I was bringing. So when I do metaphors, it's not just because I want to say this, it's because I want you to feel this underneath mm -hmm. it. Yeah, and let's, let's make the leap and like experience this mm. style. And how, about, how about you read okay. us a poem? Um, so I'm going to actually let you guys decide. I was going to say, I'm going to do this. Who wants to hear me do a love poem? Or what? What's the act? Oh, okay, we're going to go for it. So right now, that's yeah. like six hands. Clearly, no one likes love. Okay, No, no, cool. I love love poems, All right, I've but... Got, so I've got like seven people for love. Um, the other one is about rebellion. <laughs> okay. So is it love or rebellion? So, love, 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 All right, rebellion. I'm, I'm hearing... All right, hands up for love one more time. Ah, damn, love didn't win. Okay, cool. Um... So what was really interesting about this, like even if you look at the form of the poem, like it's read in a very like anthem kind of way, you read it and it's very fluid. So I wanted it to sound like there was a march happening and someone's going to be on a podium, right, and just tell you how they feel and it's going to sound like a revolutionary speech. And I feel like there's a, there is a blueprint to how you can impact someone. I remember used to watching Malcolm X videos and Martin Luther King videos, like they have a way of playing ballet with words, right? And I just wanted to know how to do that. So this is a poem called Bound, and it was really me being my, the archetype of, of what a revolutionary would be like without being a revolutionary, okay? I will not be bound. I know silence can be a deafening scream, the straitjacket made for a sane mind. I know oppression is a chain raised in the image of a key. Freedom's refugee chastised back into a life unlived, only for life to be beaten out of you. I will not be bound. I know manipulation is a cry for help with ulterior motives, a contorted view that once saw straight. I know justice is a hand man can't seem to grasp. I will not be held in contempt. No, I will not be bound. I know religion can be a controlling parent. I won't feel inferior or pitied because my God's name is spelt differently. You will not pity me because of my skin. My blackness is not a wound. I will not be bound. I know asking for permission is an invitation to yield, yet my voice needs no censorship or allegiance. It only needs to breathe where you wish it would suffocate. I will not be bound. You will not step on my tongue and tell me I am welcome. You will not wipe my feet on my integrity. I will not be bound. I know the truth is classified, but let it be known. You will not discipline or domesticate my diction. You have no right to write this, said the person who never had the guts to say it. Like it or not, I will not be enslaved by another person's perspective or a collective's freedom of speech. No, you will hear what I have to say, whatever I have to say. Like it or not, I will not be bound. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiI1038.com.